he got tough in Hard to Kill. He got even. Now, the man is marked for death. We're going back to the movies. 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 Movies. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Namigi. Hi, Ben. How's it going? It's going good. Thanks for asking me. Thank you for asking me for once. <laughs> Finally. Uh, uh, but we should introduce the podcast. Yes. Back to the Movies is a podcast where Ben and I are going on a voyage 30 years into the past for this first season. We are traveling back to the year 1990 to revisit the great movies of the year and also the really corny stupid action movies of the year and this is probably the nadir of the experiment <laughs> before we get into that though let me introduce <laughs> our special guest uh with us today is a good friend of mine and uh the man who kindled my interest in seagal with his constant constant quoting of under siege rich owens Hi, I, uh, I'm sorry to be known to your audience as the person who kindled interest in Steven Seagal. <laughs> I apologize to everyone listening to this, um, but thank you so much for having me. That was a lot of backhanded shade to just throw on you right in the right. introduction, I guess. Rich, what the hell? I don't know. Sorry. This is somehow all my fault. So, in case that wasn't obvious, today we are talking about Steven Seagal. An American original, a man who could only exist in Hollywood, California who had two movies in 1990 that we are going to discuss today. Hard to Kill and Marked for Death. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. I couldn't keep the two of them straight. I think they heard the, the title to Die Hard and were like, that movie did good business. Let's just use that title again twice. Absolutely. Look, I have a little treat at the end of the episode involving the titles of Steven Seagal <laughs> movies. So just you wait. Oh, my God. But before we get too far into it, Rich, just talk to me a little bit about your personal experience with Steven Seagal, because the reason I got you on the episode is because you are, a, I don't know what to say, like not like a fan, but an appreciator of the charms of Under Siege. Uh, yeah, so Under Siege was one of my childhood VHS movies. It's one of the movies that was just in the house and got watched a lot. For some reason, my dad, you know, he was into all that action movie stuff. And uh, this was back in the day, you know, when... You could just sort of say you knew karate and everyone would believe you. Um, and uh, Steven Seagal was like this huge... He was the king of saying he knew how to do things and people believing him. <laughs> right. And I don't know. I, it had it was a great... Under Siege is awesome. And I will die on that hill. Uh, Gary Busey and Tommy Lee Jones, like, so good in that movie. Is that his first movie or is that a later after these two? Under Siege was 92. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's later. That's... Uh, the same director as The Fugitive, though. All right. Under Siege is his only big hit. He was always, like, a steady performer. And, we'll, again, we'll talk about this towards the end of the episode. But Under Siege was his breakout. It was a very, very successful film. I just remember the scene in Under Siege where he rips a man's esophagus out through his throat. And as a little kid, I was like, oh, that's that's amazing. Wait, that's just Roadhouse <laughs> in 89. Really? Yeah, Patrick Swayze does the same thing. Same move. Seagal ripped off another one. Oh, oh man. man. Okay, well, I'll take it all back. <laughs> uh, Matt, you have some personal history with Seagal too, right? Yeah, um, I've seen On Deadly Ground, which is like his environmental 
epic movie. <laughs> his directorial okay. debut. Yeah. It's his oh, I didn't know he directed it. <laughs> uh, I saw it late one night when I was probably about 10 or 11 years old, and I remember watching it with my dad as well. I sense mm -hmm. a common thread here. Uh, and... I just remember thinking it was like this really hardcore movie. Like it was the hardcorest movie I had ever seen in my life. Because <laughs> there's a guy who gets his fingers broken and all of the henchmen end up dying spectacular, gruesome deaths. Michael Caine is in it. And That's right. I've revisited it years later and I'm like, wow, what a sham. This movie is not <laughs> hardcore. This movie's really stupid, but when I was 11 years old, I thought that was the top-notch, most visceral, violent movie I'd ever seen. And then also, I'm a really big fan of Will Sasso's impersonation of Steven Seagal on Mad TV. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is... After watching these two movies is not an exaggeration. It's just more See, that's where I'm coming from. <laughs> By the time I was aware of Steven Seagal, he was already a joke. Yeah. Like... Mad TV lampooning him like that's that's what I thought of him as. The only Seagal movie I'm pretty sure I had seen prior to this recording, prior to the movies I watched for this recording, was Executive Decision, in which he dies in like the opening set piece as sort of a Janet Lee fake out, and it's actually a Kurt Russell movie. I can't believe he d allowed that to happen. That's amazing. I know it's sort of it's sort of weird. That movie's actually pretty good though. So isn't that the one with John Leguizamo where he like physically assaulted John Leguizamo on the set of that movie? He yes, yes, that did happen. <laughs> okay. Oh god. Yeah, let's just clear the air about this right away. Uh, Steven Seagal is a terrible person. He's like a huge monster. He has been uh, um, accused of multiple acts of sexual assault and harassment and rape. He has been on record saying that he believed AIDS is a conspiracy by the CIA. He's a big conspiracy theory believer. He's um, a big supporter of Vladimir Putin. Like, he's a terrible dude. In the, in the latest Seagal news this year, he's being fined or indicted over being a Bitcoin spokesperson and not claiming assets that he was going to be getting from the Bitcoin company. I, what a sketchball. It's amazing. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> so there's that kind of hangs over this entire episode. It's hard to enjoy the charms of Steven Seagal. And there are charms. Don't get me wrong. There is something really interesting about Steven Seagal and the Steven Seagal story, but you have to always put it in the context that this man committed some pretty horrible acts and got away with it because he was successful. Yeah. Fuck Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But let's talk about his movies from 1990. Let's talk about his movies, and let's talk about him because Steven Seagal is maybe the most interesting movie star in Hollywood history. He is a manufactured movie star. He was entirely the creation of a consortium of powerful Hollywood figures working together to try and force an action star on the American mainstream, and for about half a decade, a little bit more, it worked. Ugh. So everything about Steven Seagal is just fake, basically. As far as I can tell, <laughs> yes. But and a lot of it by his own hand. Like, he created most of the Seagal myth, but then he had some weirdly powerful allies who helped him along the way. So the first thing we have to do to understand Steven Seagal is break down his journey. Okay. The two movies that we're talking about today are his second and third films. So it's right at the start of his career. His first movie, Above the Law, came out the year before, or maybe in 88. All right, and he's like he's like 35 years old at this point. So he's already had yeah. a long life of travels. 
he like never wanted to be a movie star as far as i can tell at least like that wasn't part of his origin story he wanted to be a martial artist okay when he was a young man he moved to japan and that's where he learned and taught his famous martial arts style aikido the uh sort of judo-esque redirection kind of martial art that he does that is so odd because it does not look good in a movie. It looks terrible. It yeah. looks like the movie my friends and I made when we were 12 years old. <laughs> it's You're right. I mean, that's what it is. It's like, oh, and then I take your knife. Oh, pow. It's not like Bruce Lee, who is incredibly, watching him on screen is like watching an animal do things that a human being can't do. It's not like the grace of, of like the great uh, um, Wuxia. Right martial arts films where they're dancing through the sky and doing impossible acrobatics. Nobody's going to mistake Steven Seagal for a dancer. It's a dude standing in one place, waving his hands around and then people come at him one at a time. And then somehow he beats them off. So you're telling me that that is a true, like a real martial art. I just assumed it was just idiots on the set blocking the scene in the laziest way possible. It is a real martial art. It was developed in the 20th century. Seagal claims that he studied under the, founder of the school of Aikido, although he would have had to have been very, very young at the time, given when that man died. Like how young, how young, uh, like Seagal would have had to been a young teenager moving to Japan by himself to study Aikido with this guy, but he does eventually move to Japan. He says that he was the first uh, American to open an Aikido dojo in Japan. Uh, other sources claim that he worked in his father-in-law's dojo. Steven Seagal claims that while he was in Japan, he was recruited by the CIA to run undercover ops. I don't believe that. His quote on this, that uh, most of these facts, by the way, I'm getting from a 1988 LA Times article that was published prior to the release of Above the Law. So it was like a profile on him before he had even released a film. Just sort of talking about how improbable it was that his first movie was this, you know, $10 million action movie with him as the lead. And he said in the interview for that article, uh... These guys were my students. They saw my abilities, both with martial arts and with the language. My CIA godfather told me he'd never heard any American speak Japanese so well. I would say I was a prime candidate to be recruited. I'd like to back you up to saying CIA godfather. Is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, I've heard that term before in like cheesy action movies and, and doorstopper techno thrillers. You know, this is all part of something we talked about a really long time ago with Pretty Woman which is just like people making shit up about themselves. The 80s is the time of people just going to the press and saying, I am this, look at me, give me attention. It, it was truly the dawn of the age of like not actually having to do anything to prove who the fuck you are. It was just the time where you could just show up with the most terrible personality and they would just point the cameras at you because they know people are just going to gawk at you because of how atrocious you are and that's exactly what steven seagal is doing he presages the internet celebrity era pretty much well the, and also the, the, the influencer also, i hate to bring it up but the trump era welcome to the trump era yes. here we are we were all conditioned on this guy on this on these types of guys for 30 years and uh here we are now welcome to uh 2020 i'm not trying to make this political but i'm i'm seeing a trend no. When I was reading that quote, I felt like I was starting to slip into a Trump impression. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he uh, claimed that during this time, he also provided security to the uh, Shah of Iran, who was being uh, deposed and exiled, and to Desmond Tutu. Could not verify any of that information. This is the LA Times? 
do you remember what Nancy Giles said about the LA Times in in 1990? Yes, she said it was a yeah. fucking joke of a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna criticize anymore until we get to the movie. This is certainly evidence in that favor because this article has like a tone of like light skepticism as if it's like well this doesn't sound possible but wouldn't it be great if this was all true oh my god all right continue so the point is he moves to hollywood in the 80s he opens an aikido dojo and somewhere along the line he befriends a man named mike ovitz are either of you familiar with that name afraid not ovitz is the most powerful agent in hollywood history period he was one of the founders of CAA, which is the largest and most successful agency. He served as the personal agent for actors like Tom Cruise, Dustin Hoffman, Kevin Costner, John Belushi, Michael Douglas, Bill Murray, Sylvester Stallone, Barbara Streisand. He represented Steven Spielberg, Barry Levinson, Sidney Pollack. He is the agent. And he's also a big fan of martial arts. So somewhere along the line, he meets an Aikido teacher. I'm not going to call him a master um, named Steven Seagal out in the Hollywood Hills. And he says, you know what? I'm going to make you a movie star. Before Seagal has even appeared in a movie, Ovitz takes him on, which doesn't happen. He is way too powerful and influential for that. Seagal said of him, Michael and I are very close. We love each other. I'm like a guru to him. Oh my God. Did you see the movie that came out last year, The Art of Self-Defense? I did not. I really wanted to. You should watch that movie. It's a very Seagal-esque situation. And I think that there is something to this whole martial arts guru dojo life where you can really draw people in and get them to do things for you. It could be a little cultish. A little cultish. A little cultish. Definitely cultish. Did either of you guys do martial arts when you were a kid? No. No. Not in any serious way. I may have gone to like a Taekwondo birthday party and like it was ridiculous, but not for real. I feel like it had a big surge in popularity during our childhoods. That it was like a thing that a lot of kids were doing, particularly Taekwondo. I don't know if there was like some big fad happening with that uh, in the early 90s, mid 90s. I think there was. There was Uh, Tiger Shulman's karate franchise. It it was a thing for sure. I was was afraid to go to martial arts class because I had played uh, Mortal Kombat. And the characters in that can, <laughs> they can jump really high, and I can't jump that high, and I especially couldn't jump that high then. And I was like, I'm not gonna be able to jump high enough to go to martial arts school. <laughs> um, so I really wanted to do martial arts uh, when I was a kid. My parents wouldn't let me because they were very uh, anti-violence. Your parents are very mm. smart. They were very <laughs> smart. I feel like now I look back at it and I'm like, was that just like the breeding ground for today's like toxic masculinity? Yes, I think. I It was so so male focused and it was so about like your superiority and instilling like a sense of superiority because you had perfected yourself. I would like to clear the air here and say all three of us are supposing this having never participated as children. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) There is certainly a, um, a, a beautiful expression that is martial arts. I'm just saying that like that culture may have been a contributing factor that that some of the kids today, some of the older people today who uh, um, represent the worst parts of society may have learned some of those lessons right. when they were children. In the, in dojo. Martial arts dojos. Yeah. In, the do- in the strip mall dojo. <laughs> yeah. uh, so right. to get I'm back sorry. to Seagal, <laughs> by the time Above the Law finishes production, Seagal is already being represented by Michael Ovitz. He's being boosted by the president of Warner Brothers, Terry Samel. He 
was being represented by like Hollywood's biggest public relations firm, Rogers and Cohen. He had already married supermodel and starlet Kelly LeBrock, who we will talk about in uh, our first film. He was like already made and he hadn't even released a film yet. Warner Brothers saw him as like the successor to Clint Eastwood. They had all this material that Clint Eastwood was now too old and too expensive to do. Eastwood was starting to transition to his career as a director. And they're like, let's take all those movies that would have been cheap little Eastwood thrillers in the early 80s and we'll turn them into Seagal thrillers it's in the early so 90s. It's so interesting that you say that because we'll talk about it when we were going into the movie, but that's what I was thinking the whole time. I was like, this is an Eastwood movie with bad action. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is. And it's not like Eastwood movies had great action. Yeah. But there was, like, the character is, is has, like, an Eastwood quality to him, just without any of Eastwood's gravitas. Yeah. I just want to read one last quote about Steven Seagal before we get into the movies. And this is from Tony Ludwig, who was president of Imagine Films at the time. And this was just, like, this was the Kool-Aid in Hollywood. This is what everyone was drinking. He said, as soon as I saw Steven, I knew that given the right vehicle, he could become a major star. The closest person I've ever seen that carries himself with the same kind of stature is Mikhail Baryshnikov. Steven is smooth, powerful, and he has this don't mess with me presence. It's almost as if he were a manufactured human oh, being. Oh, God. You know, you said the Kool-Aid everyone was drinking was that. I'll tell you what the Kool-Aid everyone was drinking was. Cocaine. Everyone was on cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> I want to check in on the Coke meter on both of these ten, movies when we talk ten, about ten, it. ten, ten. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's what they saw in Seagal was something that was ready to be packaged and sold. It wasn't like Schwarzenegger or Stallone where they kind of had to work their way into the public consciousness. He had everything already and there was a gap in the market for somebody who could make those kinds of movies for a lot less money. And so Hollywood manufactures this man and as a consequence of that, we get a person who is entirely made up. Steven Seagal is not a real person. And it turns out when you're not a real person, you tend to be pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's very interesting history. I will say, like, again, I am coming at these movies from a place of I am laughing at them, not with them. And I don't know what they thought of these movies when they made them. Because clearly there's some level of, like, tongue-in-cheekness to these movies there has to be particularly in hard to kill which has some really goofy stuff yeah in it. the music cues yeah. and like just the, the really cheesy lines you can't really tell though where the line is drawn where do they actually think yeah. this is sexy or do they actually think this is tough and where are they like this is <laughs> a fucking joke because from my point of view it's all a fucking joke there's nothing badass about any of it but I'm also not appreciator. I watched both of these movies back to back today for the first time. And my only other Steven Seagal was was um, 11 years old and Will Sasso. So, like, Rich, are you coming at these from a place of true visceral action movie lover? Or is it more about the funniness of it all and the ridiculousness of it all? So I definitely think these movies are really stupid. Um <laughs> And there, there's not much redeeming to be found in them, but I'm going to do my best to try to find good things if I can. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to do what I can. Now, I was going to say about the way you phrased that is um, I 
think that the action chops in March for Death are, are 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 much better, right? Like the action sequences in that movie are more technically impressive. The violence is more visible. There's more money on the camera for sure. There's more money on the camera, even though the budgets for these two movies were almost identical. Interesting. But that movie for me was a snooze fest. I hated that movie. <laughs> I already forgot all of it. And I loved Hard to Kill. Hard to Kill, I thought was exactly what i wanted <laughs> I so cheesy agree. and so yeah. fun yeah it kind of crosses over from just being ironic and you are you can just sort of appreciate it for for its sense of joy in what it's trying to accomplish it definitely feels like a more personality driven movie than marked for death which just sort of felt like a movie that was made just to get asses in seats basically it has the pretensions of seriousness without like any of, of, of the cojones to back yeah. it up. Whereas Hard to Kill is like midnight level B-movie ridiculousness, yeah. and it, it kind of knows it. But that's why I'm asking, like, who knows what in the making of these movies? I think I would have loved to see Mark, uh, not Mark for Death, the other one. Either of them I think would have been fun to see in the theater at like 11 p.m., just throwing popcorn <laughs> at the screen. I think these are the, what those movies are, and if you take them at that level, then I think it's good schlock. For sure, for sure. It's just funny, it's funny that that's, the level that we're taking them in at, considering all the history that Ben just came up with, which is that this dude was supposed to be the replacement for Schwarzenegger and Clint Eastwood. Well, yeah, but think about what Schwarzenegger's coming out with in the 80s. It's not like Commando is a great work of art. I guess so, but... Do you take it, that back? <laughs> is it on this level? Like, is It's it... better than these, <laughs> yeah. but, but not by leaps and bounds. It's better mostly because Schwarzenegger is just a better screen presence than... than Seagal is. I guess so. And because the director is certainly better. Too. All the one-liners are way better, too. I don't know. There is one one-liner in Hard to Kill that had me rolling on the floor. I'm sure you guys know what it is, but we it, should yeah, save we'll it until we get to the movie. <laughs> okay. So, let's talk about Hard to Kill. There's a few people, just to name drop up top. The director was a guy named Bruce Malmuth, who doesn't have a lot of directing credits, but interestingly, he gets a start in comedy. He makes a comedy anthology film called Foreplay with the director John Alvidson, who directed Rockies 1 and 5. So we just we mentioned him in the sequel Spectacular. And I think that is funny because the movie has a much lighter touch. So it's interesting the director got his start in comedies. He mostly did low-budget thrillers for his movie output. His other big credit, something called Nighthawks, was Sylvester Stallone, which I've never seen. Okay. The DP is a guy named Matthew Leonetti, who's definitely someone to know about. In the 80s and 90s, he was just like your go-to DP if you wanted somebody who wasn't going to get in the way. He was utilitarian, but prolific. His movies include things like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Weird Science, Commando, Another 48 Hours, Angels in the Outfield, First Contact, the Star Trek film, Rush Hour 2, The Snyder, Dawn of the Dead, which I think is really interesting because it doesn't look anything like those other movies. Um, he did a bunch of the late period Fairly Brother movies, like the bad ones that they came out with. His best film by far, if you ask me, is Strange Days, a Catherine Bigelow movie. Um, you know, the director of Blue Steel. That's right, I brought it back, Nat. I have nothing to say. <laughs> and the last person to mention, I think, is John Link. So, Bruce Malmuth, not a great director. Matthew Leonetti, perfectly serviceable DP, but not like a, one of the great artists in the field. But John F. Link, he might be the greatest action editor of all time. His late 80s is Die Hard Predator Commando Roadhouse. Mm. Those are probably the four best sequential action <laughs> movies of that decade, and he edited all of them. And editing is such a huge part of an action movie. Maybe John Link made this movie watchable. 
It's certainly possible because he also would go on to be a big Disney guy. He did the Disney Three Musketeers and he did D2 Mighty Ducks, the best Mighty Ducks movie, <laughs> like which I have a much lighter tone and touch that this movie also sort of apes. Hmm. All right. We got to investigate this John Link guy and see. So uh... I'm, I, I think everything good about this movie comes down to him. <laughs> Link made Seagal. Okay. You want to walk us through the plot of this movie, Nat? Oh, geez. Okay. Uh, let's First off, see. what's Steven Seagal's name in this movie? Mason Storm. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So good. <laughs> he's one of the great character names of all time. <laughs> he's, he's standing around a dock with a huge video recorder filming some mysterious shadowy figures that are having a very obvious conversation about murdering elected officials. He's yeah. also very obvious too. He's like behind some pallets with like big holes in it. And yet somehow nobody sees him. Can I say, I, I love how scuzzy and gross the doc looks. I don't know if it's the film or, or what it is, but like I was almost into it up to the like title. And then I think I, I did start grooving on it with the, just how nasty it looked. Yeah. It was appropriately grimy. Yeah. <laughs> it was exactly where I would have that meeting. Um, <laughs> right. I, I could not track what happens in the action sequence that ends this, the, the, like the, the conspirators discover Mason storm. And then there's like a car chase that isn't a car chase. And I didn't really understand how storm got away or why the other people didn't manage to follow him. And he killed a guy while I was at it. That's true. First kill. Do you remember the, uh, the, the opening Seagal line of this movie, our, our main character, the first thing he says, no, come on guys, let's go. I'm missing the Oscars. Oh, yeah. oh, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> He's a cinephile. He He's references cinephile. it multiple times. <laughs> he keeps talking about the Oscars. That's what makes him relatable. That's his fists with toes moment. That's why Hollywood bought in. Yeah. I will say regarding the kill that we just talked about, there is something about the Seagal kills where he just like snaps bones and necks that is yeah. a little different and is a nice Seagal touch. It's almost a parody of itself, but it's fun to watch. <laughs> I won't lie. It, it's definitely the best thing that he's got going, which is that he just does these merciless bone crunchers. Well, we were talking earlier about like how his martial arts style is not particularly, uh, you know, like doesn't play well on film. Isn't particularly cinematic. It doesn't mean it's not like exciting. It has like this almost childish sense of, of power to it. Right. Where with just a flip of a wrist, he could break somebody's neck. Yeah, it's every frustrated man's ultimate dream is that they could just kill somebody with a flip of a wrist. It's like the ultimate worst power fantasy you could ever have. Uh, and it's fucking toxic. But very watchable, and I'd watch it again. Let's go. I, I got fire in my eyes. <sighs> so he films these guys. What happens? He films the guys, and then, you know, it's he's got them dead to rights. He's like calling up his partner and he's like i got him and he can't figure out who one of the shadowy figures is but it, the name or the, the sound of the voice is very familiar so even though he's the only figure who steps out of the shadows <laughs> yeah i i guess he never got a chance to watch his own tape so he didn't know until he finally watched right. i don't know this is our villain even though he won't come back until the very end of the movie right. uh, played by william sadler who was also the villain in die hard 2 this very same year oh yeah that's right so then there's a scene completely nothing to do with the rest of the movie. And it's basically the Steven Seagal scene that if you go look up Steven Seagal on YouTube, this is the scene that pops up. It's, of course, another convenience store scene 
because everything bad in 1990 happens in a convenience store. (laughs) (laughs) And basically, he has a pretty gross conversation with the owner, who's a total prick. Though they are still talking about the Oscars a little bit. (laughs) Still talking about the Oscars. Some douchebag robbers walk in and get the money execute the owner and then of course Seagal takes him down and it's just a perfect four minute stupidest scene ever but very watchable I will admit him trying to convince the last guy to attack him is pretty great that's how you cement yourself as an action star well, right there he's kind of bullies these guys into he's dying. A bully. that is my that's my biggest takeaway it's entrapment he's a huge bully it's basically like watching a movie of Biff if he was the star and what Biff <laughs> imagines his movie is like all I see when I watch Seagal doing these crazy things where he like bullies the guys and just talks to people in general is a wannabe tough guy looking at himself in the mirror thinking he's Clint Eastwood thinking he's like this super suave tough guy but it's it's like literally like the first draft tough guy speech is in the movie. It's like the worst of the worst crap that some idiot would say to himself in the mirror. I mean, his character is that he is the deadliest man in the world. Like right. that's his character. Right. He puts the guy's his character off. is that he is hard to kill. Right. That's his character. But when you look at him as a human being, you do not buy it for a second. You don't buy it. <laughs> For a millisecond that he's legit. I was going to talk about this later when, when we see him with his shirt off, but he's like kind of doughy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, compared to Schwarzenegger and Stallone, who are these fucking Adonises with muscles on muscles. And who have also proven themselves to be not only badasses and muscle guys, but also empathetic human being. And charismatic screen presences. Yeah. And this Seagal guy, you can just tell, like, there's nothing behind those eyes. He's, who is this? He's, he's a, a shark. Fucking, yeah, he's a soulless <laughs> yeah. shark. He's I'm, the shark he's from got Jaws. Black eyes, <laughs> like a doll's eyes. Uh, Except when he attacks you, then those eyes roll over white. Yeah, and it's, it's like literally watching the bully get the starring role. And you're just like, I can see right through this guy, and he's a piece of shit. So... I will say again, I enjoyed Hard to Kill for what it was in the sense of like I would enjoy watching the school bully embarrass himself in a production <laughs> of Hamlet. Like that is the level I was watching it on. Here's here's the thing. I don't think I agree. I don't think this scene is embarrassing. I oh think the scene God. works. I think this scene is why Steven Seagal gets seven years of $50 million movies. Oh, no, I, I agree. I just think people are buying into it. And it's, so you're just saying that, like, now with the benefit of our more sophisticated gaze and our knowledge of Seagal, this scene doesn't play because we can see the truth behind it. Listen, I'm not going to brag about myself, but <laughs> I your your incredible film acumen. I like to think of myself as having a pretty decent psychopath detector. And Ben, I'm not pointing fingers, but you wanted to go do Taekwondo when you were a kid. I never had that urge, Ben. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm not being swayed by this man. He's a fraud. (laughs) He is a rapist and he is a or he's an accused rapist and he is a terrible person. And I am not going to be swayed by his guru like tendencies, but I (laughs) will enjoy. We don't need to have a debate about death of the artist right here. (laughs) But uh, I 
I can separate my feelings towards Steven Seagal enough to like look at a f- this film and decide whether or not I think it works as an action movie. Okay, fair enough, fair I enough. I think it does. I think it works as like a dated spoof of itself. But it is what it is. I and I How did I get backed into the corner <laughs> where I have to defend Steven Seagal? So I'm with you. I think that it does work as an action sequence. I think the, the convenience store thing works. It was weird when he I think he throws his gun away, right? The yep. guy with the shotgun, he's like, no, come on, man. Come get me, bro. Come get me, bro. I don't know what he says, but that's the vibe. And he gets down on his getting. knees. Yeah, he's like, I'll make yeah, it easy for you. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> and then he You're rips like, the man's foot off. Maybe I can't take him while he's standing, so I'll get on my knees. <laughs> yeah. Also, the whole time, he's just whispering. Yeah. Like, he never raises his voice. <laughs> that that works for me. The stupid, like, the, the whisper all the time, and then I'm just going to break all your bones. <laughs> I don't know what it is about it, but. <laughs> he's so cool. Nothing phases he him. He doesn't whisper at the end, though, when he's like. Come out wherever you are. He's like, <laughs> we'll get to that. But <laughs> that's what he's not. It doesn't work as well because he's not whispering. <laughs> You're right. The ending is real weird. Oh my but God. we got to keep moving for now. We have we've litigated this debate enough. An important thing that we sort of missed is before the convenience store, he calls the police station to let them know he has the footage. Oh, he's trying right. to like, let his buddy know, but it's listened in by a bunch of other cops. And we're like, oh shit, they're probably dirty. You remember what yeah. his cop buddy says to him? He says, you're no. going to get your Oscar, buddy. Oh, he yeah. you get your That's Oscar right. this. <laughs> they name drop the Oscars, I think, four times in the first six minutes of this movie. And then it never comes up again. <laughs> yeah. It's not like Hollywood is a big part of the movie. Yeah. Well, I actually have something to say about that. I did notice in this movie there's a lot of, like, cuts to just TV. Like, they cut to, I think it's, like, Dick Clark or some guy. Like, you know, one of the late show hosts. Oh, Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson. They cut to him for like a good 15 seconds and then they cut to some other TV stuff that's just sort of the on in the background. The senator's TV ad is like a weird plot point. Yeah, and I was kind of like, are they trying to tell me something here or did they just need to like pad the runtime so they just cut to the TV? I don't know. And the movie does make use of the LA locale with like a little bit more skill than some movies do. Like we go out to Ojai, which is different than LA. Yeah, it was a kind of cool low-key LA movie for sure. So let's get into the assault. Yeah, we have to mention that he makes the call to the police station because that explains what happens next. He goes home to his perfect family. Oh, my God. It is, like, the most obnoxiously perfect family of all time. (laughs) He sits down and says his prayers with his son. Oh, my God. He hides the camera. I honestly just thought he put it in a cabinet. Did we see him put it in the wall? I thought he put it in the fridge. I don't remember. Later, he'll retrieve it from a spot that I did not think was where he <laughs> right. put it in the first place. He, he managed to hide it somewhere where it survived a partial renovation and multiple homeowners. So clearly it was in the wall or something ridiculous. But after reinforcing with his son the importance of prayer and respect to God, he goes to make love to his wife when they are attacked by masked men. Again, I just can't take any of this for, at, at face value. Like I'm like, who is pranking him on this? <laughs> but yes, the masked men come and massacre the family. But yeah. fortunately for the hero, he survives. Why does he survive, Nat? Because he's hard to kill. Mason Storm is hard to kill. Toughest son of a he's, bitch. He's hard to kill. He does not die hard. He is hard yeah. to kill. The thing about the titles to Steven Seagal movies is they are all exactly the same. And yet they are all specific to the movie that they are in. In Hard to Kill, he is hard to kill. In March for Death, his family is marked for death. Yeah. And out for justice? I'm sure he was out for justice in that movie. And in, um, what's the one I watched? Uh, 
on deadly ground. On deadly he ground? is on deadly ground. Uh, wow, it's so poetic and beautiful. Honestly, I can't believe the the level of writing. Under that. siege doesn't really work because like you can't besiege a boat. <laughs> um, so anyway, they they assault the home. They kill the wife. The kid appears to get away. Mason Storm is shot multiple times, and then we cut to the scene in the hospital, and. This scene was so fucking confusing because <laughs> we introduce like two new major characters, another dirty cop who wasn't one of the other dirty cops we saw earlier mm-hmm. and a good cop, Fred Coffin as uh, um, O'Malley, who's like the only good internal affairs cop of all ever in a movie. Yeah. And yeah. he rides really hard for um, Seagal. He's like, he's my brother. He's freaking out because Mason Storm is dead and a doctor in a white coat with a chart comes out and says Mason Storm is dead. And he's like, no, oh God, it's the worst. And then a different doctor without a coat or a chart comes out and says he's alive. Yeah. And so I really had no idea who knew he was alive, who didn't know he was alive, which of these doctors was supposed to be treating him. But the moral of the story is Storm's in a coma. And I will say for all the shit I'm giving Seagal and all the shit I'm giving this movie, like it's all very watchable. It's all, yeah. even though you're talking about how it's so confusing and, like, you don't know what's going on, like, it doesn't really matter because the movie is pretty enjoyable for what it is. You know why I think it doesn't matter? Because this premise is so good. It's a great premise. A man is attacked, goes into a coma, and seven years later wakes up yeah, and then gets to seek revenge. It's like old boy. Like, it's such a great setup for... Uh, a revenge story well, to have that amount of time where the bad guys have been winning and winning and winning. Yeah, and it, it's like a it's like a classic setup. It's like Count of Monte Cristo status. Like that's a yeah. great yeah. We've great. seen it a million times before, but it just feels so I don't know condensed and raw in this one. I mean, when it cuts from him in the hospital to seven years later, I was like, holy shit! Yeah. I'm into this with now. his fake mustache. <laughs> oh god, his beard is <laughs> so the worst terrible. Fake beard I've ever seen, honestly. It's unbelievably bad. Because it's, it's not his whole face. <laughs> no, because Kelly LeBrock... Like they just let it grow. There's a line that Kelly LeBrock gave him that beard on purpose. Has <laughs> just been shaving his sideburns, so he has a massive... I don't know, he looks like, like a Confederate general. Yeah. yeah. But also, the hair, it's like a weird comb-over mustache, where <laughs> half of it's not on his brow. It's just kind of hanging there. So you're like, it's almost like he grew out the Charlie Chaplin Hitler mustache to like a ridiculous length so that it's not actually attached to his brow. I don't know. I'm pretty sure you can see the spirit gum like <laughs> sticking it to his and face. And it looks disgusting. When she's like petting him and he's got a fake mustache on. Can we talk so about gross. a second how fucking creepy Kelly LeBrock is in this movie where she goes so over wait, to... Okay, sorry. No, no, no. I want you to keep going. But just for context, we are in a coma ward in a hospital seven years later, and we are introduced to our female lead, Kelly LeBrock, playing the nurse who has been treating him for God knows how many years. Okay, Rich, talk to us about how creepy All she right, is she in this movie. Should not, she should be prosecuted. She's not doing her duty. She's, like, perving on this guy... So hard. She lifts up the the sheet and she has this line about like, ooh, you really better wake up because I want that dick or whatever she is, says. That's the subtext. <laughs> there of the are line. multiple statements about how well endowed Seagal is, which I wonder was if that was in Seagal's like contract writer. <laughs> right. We have to establish that this is a like a red blooded American male 
that you know represents what it means to be a man. It's so funny that the uh, that the hard to kill just reminds me of the fucking presidential debates. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, all right, sorry. Let's let's talk about Kelly LeBrock for a second. So she was a model turned actress. She was born in the United States, but was raised in England, which gives her this very interesting accent, which sounds like a fake British it's accent. It's almost mid-Atlantic. It is almost like a classic Hollywood movie star doing a mid-Atlantic accent. She hit it really big in Weird Science, where she is like the perfect woman that they create with their weird science in that movie. And she had a really successful commercial where she had the catchphrase, don't hate me because I'm beautiful for mm. Pantene. So like, mm. that's what she was known for. She was like the idealized woman as sex object, as beauty object. Uh, and at this time she was married to Seagal. So this was sort of, I guess, a no brainer to team them up. They have no chemistry oh my God, in no. this movie. Wait, they were married before this movie? They were married before this movie. They were married before his first movie comes out. So they are, they've been married for a couple of years at this point. Huh. Was he her guru? <laughs> Maybe. Can we, if you guys, you guys have seen Arrested Development, right? Yes. Yes. Do you guys remember the nurse who treats Buster when he's pretending to be in a coma? Yes. And she has a British accent. Was that like a deep cut reference to this movie? She falls in love with Buster in a coma. I don't know. <laughs> that, that was all I could think about the whole time. Cause she has the exact same voice. I just wanted her to say, Oh, Buster, I love you so much, but only if you stay asleep. I would pay to see this movie with Buster as the main character. (laughs) (laughs) Just remake it. Hard to kill. I'm a monster! (laughs) Let's keep going. She is with him when he wakes up, and he's got to do physical therapy. They got to get him back in shape. But unfortunately, word gets out that he's awake. And immediately they figure out who he actually is because they had hidden his identity. He was John Doe. Yeah. But then they know who Again, he is. Again, I couldn't really understand. Something that Dean Norris does. Dean Norris, Norris's second movie that we were watching of three yeah. in 1990. One thing I learned about Dean Norris this time around, he's he's um Hank on Breaking Bad, is that he's a Harvard graduate. So he's probably oh. a lot smarter than Steven Seagal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Kelly LeBrock. Yeah. So he engineers a situation where an assassin comes to the hospital and is dressed up as a doctor starts indiscriminately killing anyone that gets in his way uh it basically becomes a hitman codename 47 level yeah where, he, where he's fucking it up and it's not getting silent assassin anymore and just right. shooting anyone that walks by him but so Seagal is trying to escape him but he's still like all his muscles are atrophied so he's stuck in a hospital bed and he's like pushing himself around with a broom this sequence I swear to God, if you changed the movie, it would be like a slapstick comedy sequence. <laughs> With the elevator? Like, it's like a spoof around. Yeah, they go up the elevator, and then they go down the elevator. And then, like, when, when she's pushing the bed out and she keeps running into walls, it's like a comedy. But then on the, on the flip side of that, Tarantino perfected this scene 13 years later in Kill Bill, where she's got to wake up and deal with fucking dudes trying to kill her the second after she gets out of a year's long coma so a lot of juice to be squeezed that scene is way better at like building tension right and actually <laughs> existing as an action scene instead of this one where it's just seagal oaring himself on his bed into an elevator yeah but there is He's like a gondolier in venice there is something to be said about all of these in all these 1990 movies just all these kind of stone-faced curly-haired assassins that are just willing to go the extra mile to just fucking shoot people. And, and we see it a lot in all these movies. There's just always these guys who are ready to rock. Just let's 
go. I'll go into the hospital. I'll shoot anyone that gets in my way. It's like, it's a great archetype. I felt a little bad for the uh, the physical therapist. You know? <laughs> I did too. I did too. He just gets shit on by Steven Seagal I know. and then murdered. He's like, I'm going to help you out, Steven Seagal. In Seagal's eyes, he's like, you didn't listen to me. He, he, right. didn't, he fucked up. Even though you just came out of a coma. But I know that Seagal is like, He's a fucking idiot. He didn't listen to what I had to say. Right. He, well, he also was kind of like getting homophobic towards the guy being like, whatever. I don't want physical therapy from him. Don't give me a massage. Right. It's like, <laughs> can you imagine a movie today that was like implying that an important medical procedure like physical therapy, which helps millions of people every year, was like somehow coded as queer well, and I therefore thought, was bad? I just I, I was blown away by the fact that Steven Seagal could be homophobic. I just, <laughs> it, it blew my mind that, oh, wow. It's this, not man. just him, though. It, it's the movie, too. Well, it's, ni- it's 1990, let's be honest. No. Um, and we get m- a lot more of that in um, Mark for Death, so uh, stay tuned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, we got we to gotta plow ahead. They get out. We get a long sequence here where they escape and they go to some doctor's house in Ojai where Kelly LeBrock has been house-sitting. And it's our low point in the middle where Seagal has to train himself back up and gather information about his enemies and also begin having sex with Kelly LeBrock. Oh, my God. In a really awkward sex scene. Was that real? Scene. I couldn't tell if that was a dream or <laughs> Is not. Is it James? He was doing really... <laughs> he, it seems like after they have sex, he, like, wakes up. He's all alone. And he's, and he's, and he's still dressed. And she's gone. Yeah, it's like Bergman. Yeah, I thought he had imagined it, but I he guess was it doing, was real. Doing his karate in the mirror. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when she comes in too, it's not like she looks like she does for the rest of the movie. Her hair is all like teased out, and she's yeah. wearing the it's like a different outfit. She's wearing we've never like seen. a hooker dress. It's crazy. Yeah. And like pumps. Right. So the things I want to talk about in this sequence. One, we've already mentioned it. He spends some of it shirtless, and uh, he does not look that good shirtless. No. no. He looks terrible. That said, him cross-legged on the ground with the smoking uh, acupuncture needles, that's kind of a great image. That was pretty badass. Yeah. That is, again, how Seagal becomes a movie star is, is imagery like that, which was like, that's what I want. I want my dude who's just sitting there with smoking needles and the camera's swinging around him. Yeah. We, we don't have to talk too much about cultural appropriation of oh, the orientalism uh, yeah. <laughs> when he when he writes the list of herbs oh my god in like <laughs> but it's just it's fucked up because you know that that's also his actual story and yeah. there's right. just so many levels to it but i i did a little seagal diving after watching these movies and not only has he been accused of like asian and japanese cultural appropriation but have, have you guys seen like footage of seagal recently yeah, he, he's, like, falsely claims to be of Asian heritage. He now. falsely claims to be of Asian heritage, but he also, when he does his cop show that he had on A&E in the oh, early yeah. 2010s, oh, when he was a de- he's, all of a sudden, he's all of a sudden a black man. He's he's uh, right. completely acting like a black dude. So he, does, he, like, talks in, like, Ebonics and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. He does that and, in his movies, too. In, like, all the movies. He does this a little bit in this movie where he's, like, talking like an Italian around the Italians. And then he's talking like a black guy around the black guys. Dude, he's manufactured. He, like, isn't a real person. Yeah. It, it, would, it would be kind of great if he was, like, a Peter Sellers or something. I was just about to say that. <laughs> it was, like, the shitty action movie Peter Sellers. But, like, Andy Kaufman never died. 
Andy Kaufman yeah. and Steven Seagal. There's, there's no, you can just tell because of all the bullshit with him of like being a fucking criminal and like just being an asshole. It, it's like he's actually using it as his, it's not just an epic character performance. It's, it's, he's literally just a lost little boy who has somehow found success in stardom and is just so reprehensible. And okay, I'm going to stop. Oh, you, but, you can't. Before, can't you can't stop, stop yourself. Can't before stop we plow myself. on with the plot, before we plow on with the plot, I do want to mention while he's in his recovery mode at this uh, like farm, you know, my one of my favorite tropes happens where he opens up the the newspaper or, and sees like reports of his family's massacre, and there's a shot of him like being shot up on the bed, and there's like no way any reporter could have gotten that <laughs> shot because. <laughs> He was in the hospital by the time Prescott went to it. Also, at least two of those articles are the same article. Yeah. <laughs> and he, like, tapes them up on the wall, but there's only, like, two of them, so it's not, like, a big, cool conspiracy board. It's just, like, two newspaper clippings <laughs> up on the window. <laughs> uh, I like it when he's when he's punching the board, and in order to show how badass he is, he just punches the board and it falls over. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. we get the montage of him thinking about his wife, who he clearly cares about a lot, because he's having a hard time moving on. <laughs> <laughs> having a hard time having sex with Kelly LeBrock. Yeah. So then there's a, there's a reveal that his buddy has been harboring the child that got away from the massacre. And Sonny. There's a, whole, there's a whole thing where they track him down. Really boring. Worst part of the movie. It really is boring. We get these scenes of Kelly LeBrock like doing investigations, which don't play at all. Cut it out. Cut it out. And then we we learn O'Malley's been harboring the kid, and there's a new element in the mix where we've got this kid that's got to be reunited with Seagal. O'Malley also has the audio tape to go with the videotape that will allow them, give them the evidence they need to discover who attacked Mason Storm's family and put them away. Right. And there's, yeah, there's like an undercurrent of like, Mason's got to get revenge, bloody revenge, but he also wants to bring them to justice. But he also yeah, just, never really yeah, he also just that. wants to hang out and do, do uh, a keto and, and bang the girl. It's really unfocused. <laughs> <laughs> so one of my favorite things here is where O'Malley, again, Frederick Hoffman, is like, I've listened to this tape so many times and I have no idea who this is. <laughs> Even though on the tape, we hear William Sadler literally repeating the phrase that would become his political catchphrase. Right. And we've already seen multiple <laughs> ads of him on TV saying that exact thing. So either O'Malley is like the densest person of all time or he's totally lying and he's never listened to that tape. He's from Internal Affairs and in all cop movies, Internal Affairs guys are assholes and idiots. <laughs> uh, because heaven forbid that we, you know, try to monitor police action. Never fear, because once Mason Storm listens to the tape, he puts it together right away. He, there, that catchphrase, I'll, I'll, where it's William Sadler's like, you can take that to the bank. And he's like, oh, I know who it is. And then he says the one <laughs> oh my God. that I referenced before. That It's not even that the line <laughs> is that great, but his delivery of it is so good. He's like, I'll take you to the bank, Senator. The blood bank. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it killed me. There was a quote in the LA Times article where they said, Steven Seagal projects an air of quiet intelligence. And this scene is like watching 
a moron trying to solve a simple puzzle. <laughs> it is not intelligence at all. It's like a baby getting the shape in the right hole. It's incredible. It's so good. It, it, it killed me. It slayed me. It is my one of my favorite one-liners of all time. His delivery, the point in the movie, what it represents to the plot of the movie. It was beautiful. A work of art. All right, moving on. Um, so we're kind of in the final stretch here. The baddies have tracked them all down, and they attack the house, and we get a nice action sequence of these stone-faced killers with machine guns trying to kill Steven Seagal. Failing miserably, getting their ne neck snapped, and, you know, it's fun. We're, we, we're getting people yeah. killed. You know, this is what we came for. This is a pretty good example of what I was talking about, about the action chops in this movie not being as good. Three times in this sequence, guys are on the other side of a barrier with guns. They start shooting, right. and Seagal and Kelly LeBrock dive to the ground. That happens yeah. three times within, like, 60 seconds. That's not good action directing. Also, Dean Norris overacts shooting his gun so much. It was distracting. He's like hopping up and down and he's spraying the entire wall with bullets. He's not even trying what do you to want? shoot. You want you want nuance here? I <laughs> I want some John Wick precise action. Right. <laughs> I think you could maybe make an argument that that John Wick is a throwback to these movies. It's these movies but that take themselves seriously. I don't know. I don't like that turn of phrase because that's the problem with Mark for Death is that it takes itself too seriously. It's these movies that respect the craft of action. I do kind of feel like Keanu is in a similar, way more respectful and just better person all around vein as Seagal in a way where you're never going to watch a Keanu performance for like the substance of it. It's more just, look at this guy. He's a guy, yeah. and he's amazing. There's also, like, the elements of, like, slight Asian appropriation. Right. And they even look something alike. They kind of do, yeah. It's almost long like black Keanu hair. is, like, the good Steven Seagal. <laughs> and Steven yeah. Seagal is the evil Keanu. They're like a yin-yang. I'll do a little cultural appropriation. Yeah. Uh, it's true. It's, it, he does arm bars instead of wrist locks. Yeah. It's like the... And he, like, instead, yeah, he, like, shoots people square in the middle of their forehead instead of, like, whatever the fuck Seagal does. <laughs> but that's my hot take for the day. So then there's another fight slash chase slash thriller situation where there's, like, a hotel and a train station. And basically it leads to the death of O'Malley. And, and Storm reuniting with his son. Right. But then immediately abandoning him again. Oh my god. Yeah. But I wanted to mention a couple things here. One, what the fuck is this hotel that has uh like <laughs> that has valet attendants who are dressed up as like like beef eaters and then has a mariachi band outside it, but then also a steel drum band inside it? I'll tell you what that hotel is. That's a booming economy, okay? That is the the quality of life that we had 30 years ago that you just don't get anymore. You can't afford two different bands inside and outside at a normal hotel. But this is some post-Reagan. The economy is going nuts. Clinton hasn't even shown up yet. And taste is dead. Yeah, no, taste doesn't matter. It's just stuff it, overstuff it. This was a normal occurrence in 1990. <laughs> um, yeah, so they he, he, he meets his son 
and like doesn't even look him in the eyes and tells him to go stay with Kelly LeBrock while he goes. And, and God bless things. that because I could not have handled actual emotion between the two of them. It would have been so, so terrible. <sighs> I, I, is there anything else we wanted to mention in this whole section? It's honestly pretty uh, nothing. It's just, yeah, it's really hard to, to understand what characters know and don't know and what they are trying to accomplish and how close they are to accomplishing it during the sequence, but it doesn't because matter. It takes place over multiple locations with multiple right. characters who have different levels of knowledge of what the other characters are doing. It doesn't matter though. For some reason there's always red light in the alleyways oh. <laughs> too. In, in 90s movies, like whenever you're in an alleyway, it's red. Also on his staircase, they have like the reddest <laughs> nightlight in his family house at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> so, most importantly, he says, I got to go get William Sadler. And he goes. And he obviously goes to his mansion. And, of course, he's in a fucking jacuzzi with a hot girl because he's a bad guy. <laughs> and all of his goons are playing pool in the pool hall. So it's just a perfect setup. Like, is this the invention of the cliche? Or was this just the refinement of the cliche? I don't oh, know. Oh, this was, this was neither the invention nor do I think you can call it a refinement. <laughs> this was just the cliche. Okay. <laughs> It's all there. It's all there. Yeah, and so we see we see Seagal dispatch the goons one by one and then chase after Sadler. Him killing the the, the hitman from the hospital with the pool cue, that was pretty that was pretty gnarly. It's pretty cool. I like that. And when he kills that hitman, he says, um, that's for my wife, fuck you and die in one sentence. <laughs> oh yeah, that was a great line. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> then he kicks him, he gives him a little kick and he falls over. <laughs> Things that stuck out to me in the sequence. After he has killed most of the guys, he's like chasing one, the one last one who was in the hospital when he was first injured. And we, t we suddenly cut to that guy's perspective as he's trying to escape and evade Seagal. And he goes into the bathroom and Seagal <laughs> has taken the time to write a message on the toilet in lipstick, I guess. But it's not like a simple message like you're next or something like that. He has written painstakingly anticipation of death is worse than death itself. He also took the time to write your next in the hallway. Insane. <laughs> this is a sick, sadistic, terrible person uh, who tortures his victims. I did like it when he killed that guy and he said, now you're a good cop. That was kind of an amazing, amazing moment. It, but it's all it's all ironic because Steven Seagal goes on to become a Louisiana police officer and run over a, into a guy's house with a tank and kill the guy's dog. Fuck Steven Seagal. On reality TV. <laughs> he filmed it. The many crimes of Steven Seagal. So he finally, Seagal finally catches up to Sadler. Um, he does this really brutal thing where he shoves his gun into Sadler's mouth. And then for the rest of the scene, Sadler's mouth is like bruised and bloody it's like he bro mm -hmm. broke his teeth or something that's yeah. how i read it that was that was pretty brutal that was crazy and then uh instead of killing sadler though the cops come in and they're like we believe you we know that well annie almost shoots his nuts off remember that part but they're too small <laughs> it's like a bully just coming up with his play games it's like it's like a, a kid who got arrested for burning a cat in the forest and then they they're observing him playing with action figures in in a room with a one-way mirror and that's how this screenplay was written it's like <laughs> i'm just waiting so he gets a chance to kill sadler the cops come in they're like we believe you storm we know that you were uh you know set up earlier he had been discredited as trying to kill the senator for some reason that he was actually dirty um but we believe you we know this guy's the bad guy i was just waiting for the scene that follows where they go through the house and they're like wait a second 
did you just like murder all these dudes? Was there premeditation? You wrote messages before you killed them. You are definitely under arrest now and you're going to jail for the rest of your life. He's a cop. But instead he gets to walk off into the sunset with Kelly LeBrock in one arm and his kid in the other. From a different Hey woman. kid, here's your new mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. By the way, I'm alive. I still and, haven't uh... looked you in the eyes yet because I just don't really care. <laughs> that, the ending doesn't really play well. <laughs> Uh, you're right just the ending and well i looked it up because i was confused and uh it turns out that was not the original ending what was the original ending according to wikipedia originally he killed the guy and it didn't uh i guess it didn't play well at test audiences or something and then they changed it because they were like this is disgusting like this is sick (laughs) he just executed everyone it's not how this is supposed to work interestingly we can talk about this again in mark for death the way that he kills the villain in mark for death was too much for me i was like I can't root for a guy who's going to do this to somebody. You're finally crossing over, Ben. You're learning the evil of Steven Seagal. So, final reviews. Here's how I feel about this movie. It is cheesy. But it's cheesy like an extra cheese pizza with a cheese stuffed crust. You know it's bad for you. You don't really want people to know that you enjoy it. But sometimes you just want to buy a large extra cheesy cheese stuffed crust pizza and eat it all in one sitting and then spend the rest of the afternoon immediately regretting it. Sometimes that's what you want. And that's what this movie was to be. I wanted to mention something really quick, which is that in 1989, a movie called Do the Right Thing came out. (laughs) And it was probably lauded at the time as the most dangerous movie to be in theaters of that year. A couple months later, this movie comes out, has the Do the Right Thing poster in the background of a scene for those eagle-eyed viewers. One of the scenes that takes place outside has a Do the Right Thing poster. It's like a marquee, like a theater marquee, right? Big big theater marquee in L.A., which was cool to see, like, promotional for for an old movie. Um, This movie's probably way more dangerous than Do the Right Thing (laughs) for an entire generation of American males. With that said, it's highly entertaining and as long as you are not easily susceptible to false prophets and gurus, you can enjoy it. <laughs> as long as you're wearing your hazmat suit. Exactly. I think I think I'm reading this then as a three thumbs up uh, <laughs> yeah. review of with an asterisk. <laughs> with an asterisk. Yeah, asterisk. Definitely a big asterisk, but it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's please get through the rest of Hard to Kill and then really zoom through March for Death because okay. I did not care for that movie. That's okay. I didn't either. I think our discussion will be much shorter. Box office for this movie. Uh, budget was $11.5 million. I just wanted to compare that to Die Hard 2, which had a budget of over $60 million. And I don't think that this movie is any worse than Die Hard 2 as far as action movies go. I think it's better than Die Hard 2. It at least has watchability and is shorter. Like, yes. yeah. it gets the job done. It gets in and out. I would watch this movie again. I have no desire to watch Die Hard 2 again, yeah. but I would watch this movie again. And this Agreed. movie does perfectly fine. It opens on February 9th to 9.2 million opening weekend. Goes on to gross 47 million domestic, which is a perfectly solid total. Uh, a great return on their $11 million investment. Uh, you guys want to do the ranking game? Rich, the idea here is that we have to try and guess where this movie fell on the list of um, all-time domestic gross for 1990. What did it earn again? $47 million. Ooh, okay. Uh, uh, let's do benchmarks. Geez. Do you think... I have no context. Uh, if you're within five, I'm going to give you the point. <laughs> what, what, within five? What points? All right. I have a little bit of context, so you can you can go off my educated uh, guess. Um, all right. I'm going to put it at, like, 38. 38. Right. I'm going to give it, like... 
I'm going to give it like a 29. Oh, Rich was by far the closest. It was 24. This was in the wow. top 25 movies of the year. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Most dangerous movie, 1990. <laughs> Point for Rich. Uh, he's up one on Nat. Nat, who won the uh, box office game competition in the sequel Spectacular. Is, I uh, thought I lost because you changed the rules at the last minute and gave two points to the last no, movie. No, you're right. You're right. But I get... I'm not counting. <laughs> <laughs> I've transcended. I've transcended the game, Ben. I am just about a keto now. I can't do a stick all. <laughs> I'm just trying to build some stakes, you know, into the episode, into the narrative uh, of the episode. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right, um, let's talk about March for Death, Seagal's second movie of 1990. I watched this immediately after watching Hard to Kill. I was kind of like, oh, it'll be a double feature, fun. Oh. It wasn't that fun. <laughs> I mercifully put a day between them. Me too. Did we all do them in release order? Yeah. Hard to kill first and Mark for Death second? I did. Yes. yes. It's just, it doesn't slap as the same way. It, like, I, it's it's lost whatever sick, twisted charm Hard to Kill has. <laughs> like, they were trying to make an actual movie out of this one, and it's just immediately forgettable. It's bland. It's boring. It feels kind of fucked up and racist in a weird oh, way because yeah. you yeah. know you know that a fucking jamaican didn't write this movie yeah. are you kidding me I, I don't know a lot about rastafarianism but i'm pretty sure it doesn't work this way <laughs> yeah so it was just overall just a bad time yeah it's funny because this movie does sort of like superficially look like a more legitimate film it's better shot it's got a, a better supporting cast of more recognizable and talented actors it's got more pedigree. The action scenes are more technically accomplished, but everything else about the movie is a slog. Yeah. The plot yeah. is incomprehensible. The characters are non-existent. It has no charm. It has no humor. It has no fun. No fun. And I'd even give it, I wouldn't even give it the edge in cinematography because at least the cinematography in Hard to Kill felt appropriate for what we, we were watching. Whereas this just kind of felt like... Generic? Generic, yeah. It just was too slick. Yeah, nineteen ninety slick, mm. which is not very slick by today's standards. It's it's shot. It's like a very much like a poor imitation of the Yann de Bont style of action cinema. Yeah, and it just was boring to watch. And at least in Hard to Kill, I was like, oh, cool. Here's a shot with the Do the Right Thing poster in the background. Here's a <laughs> shot of the hills of Ohio. Like, it had a better sense of what it wanted to be, whereas this was just nothing. And nothing, there's nothing worse than nothing. You gotta have something. <laughs> so we've already alluded to the writers and the cinematographers. So let's quickly mention those names. This movie was written by and produced by Michael Grace and Mark Victor, who wrote their check in Hollywood by co-writing Poltergeist. Huge hit in the early 80s. Uh, uh, Steven Spielberg produced, Toby Hooper directed. Steven Spielberg allegedly directed as Ghost well. Ghost directed by Spielberg. A movie I, I, I love, I think that has a really solid screenplay. They would go on to write a couple other movies, but they never really had a hit nearly as big as Poltergeist. Maybe their next most famous movie is Sleepwalkers, which we mentioned on the sequel Spectacular episode. It was Mick Garris of Psycho 4's biggest credit as a director. I've got to imagine that every writer in Hollywood in 1989 just had a fucking drug action thriller. <laughs> in their, their back pocket. Hand. Just in case somebody was like, hey, I have Seagal. You got anything for Seagal or like Clint Eastwood or whoever? They were like, yeah, 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 I got it. It's Jamaicans. And they're like, great. <laughs> like, that's how this movie felt. That's the pitch. They walk in and they go, 
it's Jamaicans, and they walk exactly. Out. Hey, I it works for Predator too. Hey, uh, you want to do a bump with me, Jamaicans? Yeah, it's gonna be a huge movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I imagine this. This movie was shot by uh, Rick Waite, who was a, a big DP in the '80s. He shot things like Red Dawn, Footloose, Brewster's Millions, Cobra, Adventures in Babysitting. So he crossed multiple genres and was definitely sort of on the decline of his career as this movie is coming out. Very, again, technically proficient, but maybe not a great cinematographic artist. Movie's directed by a guy named Dwight Little, who mostly does TV. He's had a very successful career on TV. He's done a few films. One of them that I noticed was Halloween 4, which is probably my least favorite of the Halloween movies. So that's not a great place to be. He also did a really kind of stupid but fun Wesley Snipes thriller called Murder at 1600 that's about a cover-up of a murder at the White House. I like that movie. It's a good, like, cable program. I have to look that up. That sounds great. And the other person I wanted to mention in the behind-the-scenes of this movie is, did you guys see who wrote the music of this movie? No. It was James Newton Howard. Oh, wow. A great composer. And this is really early on in his career, although he had a pretty big 90s which uh, included Pretty Woman as well. I'll call out his uh, his 93 score for Falling Down, which is one of my personal <laughs> favorites. And I feel like Falling Down was an inch away from starring Steven Oh, my Seagal. God. <laughs> that movie would Speaking be unwatchable movies, yeah. if it were Steven <laughs> With Michael Douglas, it's almost watchable. <laughs> Highly watchable. What are you talking about? <laughs> this is also the first film that Seagal produces. So he's continuing to move his way up the Hollywood ladder. All right. Can, can we just, like barely go through the plot of this one because i cannot stomach it yeah it's fine seagal is a dea agent he quits he goes back home he meets his old army buddy played by keith david oh you skipped over young danny trejo though yeah it's true danny trejo he like chases him in the first scene that scene was really confusing because seagal gets hit by a car and like falls away from the chase and then all of a sudden is in front of Danny Trejo and kicks him. I had to rewind to watch it because I could not figure out what had happened. I was coming off fresh from Hard to Kill, so I was just like, this shit doesn't matter. It, there's no point in trying to track any of this. Poor Nat's hating his life. When he quits, he says something like, we're the bad guys, which just, it really spoke true. Yeah. There you go. Well, this was definitely in the drug world of 1990 that we've seen time and time again. And can we call out the Jamaicans selling crack to all American football players? The whitest football the, team ever. In the back <laughs> lot of the, of the football stadium and just like how ridiculous. One thing I wanted to fact check, but I didn't, was the stupid ass newscast where they're like, the Jamaican posses are the biggest gang in America? That reeked of, like, half-assed screenwriter research right there. Yeah. The fact that they were called posses, the, like, the stats well, they Jamaican were Well, Jamaican posses around. are a real thing. It's a real term for gangs in right. Jamaica. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying it's, like, it's that kind of completely unnuanced screenwriter bullshit that you see. Yeah, it's... A cokehead screenwriter was, like, watching the news one night in L.A., and they're like, oh, my, my screenplay about Jamaican posses, yeah. Rich, what uh, were you going to say? I, oh, I was going to say, in that same monologue, uh, they're like, less than 1% of the Jamaican population is involved with these posses, but they're extremely violent. And I was like, okay, I wonder what the percentage of on-screen Jamaicans is going to be involved <laughs> with the posses. 99%. <laughs> yeah. This might be the, the single worst instance of... Token good guy I've ever seen. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> 
where they're like, guys, it's too fucked up and racist what we're doing here. Yeah. We've got to have a Jamaican police detective in this Chicago town. And you're just like, it's so fucking stupid and terrible and reeks of just bad vibes. Right. And Keith David gets over his anti-Jamaican prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> Keith David's like, I thought all Jamaicans were all monsters or whatever he does. He's like, but you're an okay guy. I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head, but are any of the main creatives in this movie at all Jamaican no. or at all black? They're all even? white. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Can we talk about Keith David for a second? He's such an interesting actor because he's like a cult icon, but he never hits it big. But he's in so many great movies, particularly because of his partnership with John Carpenter. You know, mm -hmm. he's got things like The Thing, They Live. But he's also in like Platoon. He's in Clint Eastwood's Charlie Parker biopic, Bird. He's in Always, the Spielberg movie that comes out in 89. Like, he's around, but he just never breaks out. But he's also still a big enough cult icon that he can, like, play himself in a video game. Yeah. The Saints Row games. Isn't he also in Halo 2? Uh, yeah, he's the voice of the... He's the Arbiter, I think. But yeah, he, he like... I mean, he has an incredible voice, don't get me wrong. But I just... He occupies such a weird space where he is a recognizable name that nobody gave a shit about when he was in movies. Yeah, he's a good guy, and he has absolutely nothing to do in this movie. So Yeah, I want to talk him. about that later. It's <laughs> it's incredible that this entire movie is about him and Seagal's partnership, and they never feel like partners. Yeah, it's kind of impressive in a way. Seagal is so bad at sharing the screen, and they have so little chemistry that it, it he feels like a sidekick. He doesn't feel like an equal He barely even feels like a sidekick. He feels like a nothing again. That's my biggest <laughs> word for this movie, nothing. So, okay, shit goes down. There's a pretty crazy bad guy. With green eyes. Named Screwface. 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 Who was watchable for like two minutes and then got old really quick. That guy's name is Basil Wallace. He was really active in like the experimental theater scene in New York. Sounds like he probably did some pretty cool stuff outside of this. Yeah, I thought you were going to say it sounds like he did a, some pretty good cocaine outside of this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's a given. Can we talk about these early scenes where we're establishing the gang and then like an Italian mobster pays like a Spanish woman to do weird catholic voodoo to try and right. kill is is this movie like trying to argue that magic is real like what is going was, on in these sequences i wish they had leaned harder into that i feel like i would have been on board for a weird supernatural cop crime although if they had leaned harder into it it would have been even more racist it kind of seemed <laughs> so. like they just the screenwriters watched live and let die and were like let's just do that again with what i don't understand is that one of the practitioners of this paganistic voodoo-esque magic is a Spanish woman with a crucifix on her neck, presumably Roman Catholic. What is she doing? I mean, who knows? Is she praying to God to smite Screwface? <laughs> she's like sacrificing a chicken. I don't understand. What does this movie think she's doing? Because they are probably racist and they're like Spanish people are Catholics but we need this hot Spanish lady to be like a voodoo person. So let's just have her doing voodoo with the Catholic shit on. Frankly, I don't know enough about voodoo <laughs> yeah, or Catholicism to like speak to it any authority. For all I know, this could be accurate, <laughs> but it's, it's very clearly not accurate, but I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm I, in a place. To, yeah, you're right. I'm, to be the one who like breaks down. I'm not the arbiter is. either. You're totally right. <laughs> no, Keith David is the arbiter. We already right. established that. <laughs> it, it's just, it, what's important in this podcast is that it's like so base level. You see what is happening and you just really don't give a shit. 
you're just like, <laughs> okay, that guy's talking to her. And now she's doing magic. Like it's just they just do not get any sort of story driven situation out of any of this. It just is like happening in front of you. So I think that in a vacuum and putting aside just for the moment the racist implications of having a Jamaican gang practicing voodoo and having it be something real. The tension between whether or not there's actual magic in the world of this movie is actually something that could be really fun. Yeah, especially towards the end. Yeah, with the twist at the ending where it turns out the villain had a twin. Yeah. And earlier it almost looked like he teleported because of that twin. That could be really fun, but the movie just doesn't dedicate enough time to it or exploring it. And it has nothing to do with the Seagal side of things. Nope. Yeah. That's why I think this movie was like appropriated to include Seagal. They were like, we need another Seagal movie. What do you got? It's like, okay, have this voodoo thing. This is the one that also feels the most Eastwood to me. Like you could picture Eastwood playing a grizzled cop who's after this gang and his character wouldn't have to like have so many sequences where he gets to be completely badass. It's more about the conspiracy and the underworld and his investigation into it. Yeah. But no, it's just uh, belly flops. Speaking of belly flops. So the gang is running wild. Seagal decides he's going to start going after them. Um, he begins his investigation into them by going to interrogate an Italian mobster named Jimmy Fingers. Oh my God, Jimmy Fingers. He's a made man. <laughs> Has a, a really, God made man. <laughs> really great one-liner, uh, which again, both of these movies have like really strong Christian moments. Which is interesting because Seagal would later become a Buddhist and be a pretty outspoken proselytizer for that religion. I feel like that's a very calculated, we're trying to sell this to middle America, flyover country. Got to make sure those Christian values are front and center. Man, I couldn't imagine a, a tough talking, tough guy who pretends to be a Christian and is a fucking bully. <laughs> Ooh, what kind of person is that? But to get back to the segue I just made, the uh, stunt fall at the end of the sequence where Seagal throws the Jamaican guy out the window was a yeah. pretty great stunt fall. Well, no, that's a suicide. The guy jumps himself. Oh, you're right, because Seagal's yeah. going to interrogate him, and he's like, Screwface will do worse to me, right. and he throws himself out the yeah, window. Yeah, it's pretty insane. Which later, uh, when he's talking to Keith David in the car, he has another one-liner where he's like, one guy thought he was invincible, and the other guy thought he could, could fly, and they were both wrong. And that line is not true. <laughs> the other guy was trying to kill himself. <laughs> Maybe it he thought he could fly. Maybe that's part of the whole magic thing. I don't, I don't know. But I just want to talk about this fall for a second because, you know, like a stunt fall is, is a classic action movie trope, particularly in the 90s, because it was like a stunt that everyone knew how to do and you could figure out a way to work it in. But this movie includes a shot pointed down at the ground that holds for m more frames than I would have expected of this guy falling towards a car. And I have to say, I don't actually know how they did it. It's clearly a stuntman falling in that scene. It must be something with a blue screen, but it, it's pretty flawless. It's even better than the fall in Die Hard, which looks great when, when they drop Alan Rickman, but you can tell that they're dropping him over a green screen. And I honestly went back and looked at the shot again and couldn't figure out how they did it. It's not a dummy. It's a guy. I was impressed in the moment. I remember being like, wow, that's quite a fall. So yeah, that was cool. That was a cool stunt. That's probably the highlight of the movie for me. <laughs> Okay, speaking of, it's sort of speaking all of fast forward, here. fast forward, fast forward. We have an attack on his house that's really boring. We have hospital drama that's really boring. We've got his, what is she, his cousin? His sister? Sister. His sister. His sister, she's dramatic. She sucks. And <laughs> then he's got to go on the hunt. He's got to track them down. And honestly, I watched this movie not five hours ago, and I cannot go through the beats of the plot. 
it turns out that there's like this whole thing about symbols and uh, Seagal's family has been marked for death. And so the only way he can stop them is by murdering Screwface because then the rest of the gang will respect his power because they will think that he has absorbed <laughs> Screwface's magic and then they will leave his family alone. Yeah, that's how most inner city gangs operate. <laughs> <laughs> I could not track this movie. I could not follow it. All of the connecting tissue of this movie is either underplayed or non-existent. It's like all the big sequences and then nothing in between. And there's a really complicated story happening here with characters making very complicated decisions that you cannot understand because you don't know anything about them. And the movie does not show you. I will confess. I didn't realize Keith David was a cop in this movie. I thought, he's he, not. Was just I like, thought he was a coach. Oh, he, he, Yeah. He's, he's like yeah, a, he's a, coach. he's a football coach and he was like an army buddy. But we only okay. know he was his army buddy because we get one shot of a photograph of them all in army fatigues and one shot of Seagal's like trophy box and his collection of old guns. That is all the movie gives us to tell us why Seagal would go to Keith David. In that sequence, doesn't he like assemble a little wheel lock pistol or something into his hand? He does. Like they, Does that ever come up again? No. That bothers yeah. me. <laughs> right? They spend so much time on him building this little cool gun, and then he never uses it. There's so many things like that in this movie. So they go down to Jamaica, right, to go find Screwface, and there's this scene in a club where Seagal meets this sexy Jamaican lady, and they have a conversation. And I was waiting for that woman to come back. And right. she doesn't. She's gone. I wanted her to, like, fight him or something. Nah. Like, you're asking for the too movie much. just doesn't know how to movie. Yeah. And like, that's why I don't want to talk about it for too long. There's a there's a good there's a good car chase in there that was actually pretty slick. Um, oh yeah, the one that ends at the mall. Yeah, that was pretty funny when they went into the mall and there was this insane extended fight scene. That was probably the highlight of the movie for me. That just more of that Aikido ridiculousness where people just stand around, run at him one by one, and <laughs> he's like he waves again, his hands. Another bully torturing cat moment is when. The guy takes a poor, helpless woman, and Seagal's like, kill her. I don't give a fuck. And you're just like, you're <laughs> disgusting. You're disgusting pig. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, they go to Jamaica. He cuts. He, he, like, Screwface attacks him with a sword, and he steals the sword from him, and he cuts him down. It's pretty sweet. He's, he decapitates. Well, he, he cuts his nuts first. He cuts his nuts first. And then he, cuts and then he decapitates <laughs> him. Yeah. 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 Um, and then he goes back to the States to confront the gang, and we get our twist. Turns out Screwface had a twin, and now he has to kill Screwface again. Right. And this time he, like, beats him to shit, breaks his back, and throws him down an elevator shaft so he gets impaled on a spike. And by that point, I was like, okay. All right, I've had <laughs> Time <enough>. to go. <laughs> you didn't need to break his back and then impale him. I do like that he used a pro wrestling Brack's back breaking, <laughs> like, over the knee. I don't think that's in Aikido. I think that's not an Aikido move, the, the drop you. That's not officially sanctioned. I think I've seen The Undertaker do that, but I don't think that's... I, I'm Aikido. pretty sure Bane, that's a Bane, Bane right move. there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that is a, that's definitely a Bane move, Batman. And of course, both of his partners get shot, but he comes out completely fine. Because, you know, they were just up against like 50 sure. other people with guns, but he's totally okay. good. I think that's a big thing about Seagal, that why a lot of his stuff weirdly falls flat, is like when he's running his mouth... 
in these movies and like throwing out his taunts and stuff it's like the opposite of your john mcclain character where you know john mcclain's like talking mad shit because he's just barely scraping by but seagal's pretty untouchable in all these movies he's like ripping people's wrists out and <laughs> snapping people's elbows the wrong even way even when he gets tied down to get fucked up he immediately breaks out of it he's yeah. gonna get sacrificed or whatever and he just that's why i think this is like a bully's movie this is how a bully <laughs> wants to be a hero they want to just always be on top of everyone. They want to dominate everyone they come into contact with. They don't want to be the plucky underdog. They don't want to be the guy that actually overcomes any sort of obstacle. They just want to be the person that constantly dominates everyone else. He definitely no-sells everything. He's like the John Cena of action stars. (laughs) Even more so than John Cena. Yeah, at least you know John Cena's like a nice, funny guy, like, who probably doesn't want to just hurt people for a living. Like, Oh, this guy. I guess I should clarify and talk about the wrestling character, not the <laughs> not the person, not the human being. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's so it's it's an obvious lesson, right? That everyone who has knows anything about movies knows, which is that your characters have to struggle. That's what makes them interesting and relatable. And somehow Seagal got away with never doing that. Well, because I think there's a large section of the population that doesn't care about struggling. They literally do want to just get whatever the fuck they want whenever they want it. And I think this speaks directly to that. It's like the id of just being a person. Like, you're just like, I just want to be a god on Earth. And that's what Seagal is. <laughs> I just want to break anyone's neck who even tries to cross And, me. like, the minute you have any sort of introspection, you just, like, snuff it out like a little baby bird, basically. And you become a weirdo Bitcoin peddling fat guy. Like, it's just fucking crazy. You know what I was thinking about watching these movies? As a kid... There was like so many ways that I was convinced it was easy to kill somebody or get killed. Like the classic, like, like the punch, the the bones of your nose up in your brain. Or like if you hit somebody too hard in the temple or like you could Mm -hmm. like break somebody's neck by twisting it. And I don't think any of that's true. Right. Like that's all a lie that we like tell each other when we're kids to freak each other out. I don't know, man. I think that you can die from getting punched hard enough, but the nose to the brain. Is I think not that's real. the folly of life is that some people can get shot 15 times and be fine. And other people like get plunked on the head once and they just drop dead. It's the mystery of weirdo biology. But if you're in the room with Seagal, that guy will fuck <laughs> you up, bro. He'll fucking kill you, bro. I'm so angry about Seagal. I'm sorry. I can tell. You are like, I hate you have no space. Ben, I hate bullies. I hate bullies. And I think Seagal's a fucking bully. I hear you. And I don't disagree. <laughs> but you enjoy his antics. I enjoyed his antics in the first movie where he was kind of like a cartoon. Well, yeah. Where he was a buffoon man. You go out with a bully for a night of drinks. And for the first two hours, it's kind of fun. He's joshing people. He's fucking with them. And you're on his side. But eventually, the bully will turn on you. And he's going to start coming up with crap and make you listen to an hour and a half of the time that he beat up a bunch of Jamaican guys. And you're just like, I'm fucking over this, dude. This guy sucks. So, March for Death. Budget, $12 million. Half a million more than Hard to Kill. He's always right around that mark anyway. Opens on October 5th to $11.8 million. Has a slightly better opening weekend, maybe riding off the success of Hard to Kill. But it only goes on to gross 43 million domestic. So it does a little worse than Hard to Kill overall. But Seagal was like the $40 million man. That's what he did. From 1990 to 1996, he makes seven movies. One is a huge hit under Siege, and the rest all gross just about $40 million. Like, he just was in the zone. He was in the pocket. Nat, do you even want to play the ranking game on this? Uh, You look so upset. 
No, sorry, I'm just lost in my own thoughts. Um, what was the domestic again? Forty-three. Forty-three. Four million dollars less than hard okay, to kill. Okay, well then by that logic, I'm gonna stick with my guns and say thirty-eight again. I think I said thirty-eight the first time. I'm gonna put it at twenty-five. Again, Rich is closer. It was twenty-nine. Wait, what was the other? Oh, one? oh the other one was twenty-four. Twenty-four. Okay, yeah. so the difference of four so, million is only five places. Okay, it's only a few spots. I'm gonna, I'm gonna it, fucking he, count cards on this, man. I'm gonna listen to every you episode. Again. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to be like, well, we've already had one, three, six, seven, eight, and ten, so this has to be number two. <laughs> yeah, I don't take games that seriously. But anyway, point being, like, he had two movies in the top thirty. Pretty good. They were effectively the same movie, and they came out in the same year, and they both made forty million dollars. I bet this movie made more. Or it made as much as it did because of the first one. Like, people wanted more of Hard to Kill. I think you can see that in the fact that this has a bigger opening weekend, but a lower gross overall. Yeah. That this one probably didn't didn't have its good legs. Word of mouth probably wasn't as good. Okay. I have one last game before we wrap things up. I'm going to call the Cigar Oh, game. yeah. The special game. Yeah. Because we already talked about this, but I love the titles to Steven Seagal movies. Because you hear them and you just know right away that that's what it is. No other movie star has like the same formula to their films. It's always like three words and it's always about like death and how cool he is. So I've made up a little game. It's played over three rounds. I'm going to list off three titles and you have to tell me which one I made up. Three rounds. First round. Driven to Kill. Deadly Intent. Exit Wounds. Which one is not the real Steven Seagal movie? I'm going to go with A, Driven to Kill. Rich, do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Driven to Kill is a real Steven ah. Seagal movie. It was Deadly Intent. Ah. Really? That sounds good, Ben. You have a career in Seagal writing. Well, we'll see how you feel about the rest of these. Okay, you ready? Contract to Kill. Half Past Dead. Beyond Reproach. I'm going to go Half Past Dead. Rich, do you agree? I'll go and say Beyond Reproach. Oh, that sounds very Stephen Seagal movie to me. Rich, you you win! Hey! It was Beyond Reproach. <laughs> I made that one up. Contract to Kill, again, a real Stephen real Seagal title. Okay. Nice. All right, here what we go. What is my prize? Round That's three. Prize. Round three. There's one more round. <laughs> this one's the big one. You guys ready? Prime to Kill. Fire in the Hole. Dead to Rights. I gotta say fire in the hole. That can't be real. Come on. I'm gonna say primes to kill is the is the one that's not it. They're all made up. I made all those up. None of those are Steven Seagal all movies. Alright, alright. Wait, what were those three? Prime to kill, fire in the hole, and dead to rights. Dead to rights. Fire in the hole would be too much. I mean he's still making movies, so those could become Seagal movies. <laughs> they could. They could. He's definitely listening to this, like loading his fucking nunchucks right now. He had a bit of a resurgence in the early two thousands. Exit Wounds and Half Past Dead were part of that, where it was a slightly older Seagal. I think it might have been sort of like a, you know, a post 9-11 swing back to the right kind of thing. People wanted some visceral action movies to work out their feelings. He did a lot of movies with rappers. I remember that. There's like a, a brief streak. Yeah, like, yeah, early 2000s. Uh, but he is still making like straight to DVD movies today that all look terrible oh god let's wrap things up with a discussion of some 90s themes i had a couple but nat did you have anything you wanted to throw in the death of nuance the death of charisma <laughs> the death of empathy and crime as always <laughs> crime and drugs i think that this movie or both these movies are you know part of a long tradition of schlocky b action movies yeah. um 
And I think that you could probably remake them today and people would go see them. I think there's a couple of things that are interesting about where this film is placed chronologically. In the 80s, hardcore action was a major player commercially. You've got hugely successful films that are really like R-rated action films. But by the time you hit 1990, that's sort of in decline, right? And those kinds of movies can no longer support the megastars like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone, whose quotes are too high, whose reputations have grown to the point where they can't just make those cheap, nasty thrillers that launch their career. And so there is a space for somebody like Seagal to move in. And those movies continue to exist, but they are in the sort of diminished form that we see here. The other thing I was thinking about on the action movie front is how Seagal is kind of in this weird place where he is a mix of like the eighties Ubermenches, right? But he's also not them. He doesn't have their physique. He doesn't have their talent. So he's a little bit more like the everyman hero that Bruce Willis really establishes in Die Hard 2 and would go on to be the de facto action hero of the 90s, like think Harrison Ford. I think this is where Nat is like really getting it. Because <laughs> like he is the most, he's the most pear-shaped action hero. <laughs> and like you can watch him and then be like, oh man, it doesn't matter that I'm out of shape. If I just knew his moves, I could just fuck anybody <laughs> up. If I went to the right dojo, <laughs> I could rip people's heads it, out. It's right? so weird that he is in way worse shape than Bruce Willis is in Die Hard, but his character is played as so much more capable. Also, he runs hysterically. <laughs> he like right, flails his arms out to the side. There's a whole montage on YouTube of Steven Seagal running that I recommend everybody look up. I completely agree with you. It's like, it, it's like this one trick will have you killing soulless bad guys left and right. Just learn this one pressure point and you too can yeah. be an action hero. That's who this movie is speaking to. Are you worried about the people that you see on your street? Yeah, exactly. For very justified reasons. They definitely are a danger to you and your family. Don't want to spend actual years learning martial arts and ways of killing people. It's okay. We've got the pressure point technique. Snap anyone's <laughs> neck and arm, yeah. humiliate them, and then sleep with the hot lady. <laughs> sleep with the lady from the Pantene commercial. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> it's a sick place we live in. We didn't talk about the hot lady in Mark for Death, Joanna Pakula, who plays like the she detective. She's barely there. I know. The movie like is not interested in hot ladies. I don't remember her at all. She's the detective who explains what the symbols mean. Don't remember it. She had a pretty big breakout in the 80s in Gorky Park. That was like her first American film. She plays the female lead in that. She's great in that movie. That movie's awesome. Don't recall her saying a line in this movie. She had glasses and she had a line where she was like, ooh, I want to fuck you. Like that was the subtext of the line. Yes. Not ringing any bells. Um. Not ringing any bells. I'm honestly, I'm serious right now. I do not yeah. remember this person. I will have to go back to the file and look at it. All right. I'm sorry I was so upset during this podcast. I think it was supposed to be a little bit more of a fun podcast, but... I gotta just shit on this guy because he fucking sucks. I'm sorry. And I liked Hard to Kill, and I, I want to be there for the, the fun, but I also just have to take this dude down from my really, really small platform. <laughs> so thank you for listening. Yeah. No, I think it's good because I think I am probably too forgiving. I, I'm, I, I know this about myself, that I'm too willing to kill the artist if I like the work that they produced. And that is a problem because it, it allows people who are horrifying human beings to continue to thrive and then to <laughs> prey upon other people. Like, I recognize that it's an issue and that I should take that issue more seriously. I just, when I'm 
enjoying a movie, I have a hard time remembering the context in which it was made. Hey, it's all good, man. We're all here just to watch movies and, and have fun. But Next week, we're talking about fun. Chinatown. Woo! Oh, God. <laughs> no. yeah. as, the, uh, as the third wheel, I agree with Nat. Fuck Steven Seagal. He's a monster. Um, and uh, I had fun watching these movies, but I think mostly just because I got to talk to you guys about it. Ah, <laughs> well, that was we very learned something nice. in the end. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on, Rich. This was really fun. Super pleasure. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. Follow us on social media at BTTMPod on Instagram and Twitter. BTTMPod at gmail.com if you want to send us feedback. Please do. The first person who sends me an email just to say hi, I will be so excited. I'm just <laughs> waiting for an email. Every day I check. Thanks to Andy Gagnon for our amazing theme song. Well, thanks again, Rich. Uh, and for Back to the Movies, this has been Nat. And I'm Ben, and we'll see you next week when we go Back to the Movies. All right, let's do this. Oh, I was going to do a thing for the intro. Oh, man, I didn't practice this at all. <laughs> we'll see how it goes, and maybe I'll take it again. Sure. What's up, everybody? It's me, your host, Ben. The strongest, handsomest, most skilled, deadliest man in the world. And with me, as always, is my co-host. Nat McGee. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing really great. I'm full of mystery. I'm very soft-spoken. It's because I'm talking about Steven Seagal. This sucks so bad. Let's take it again from the top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>